On the next Selected Shorts, we reveal what strangers, in-laws, and even famous people might secretly think about you. Well, not you specifically, we're not that clairvoyant, but you generally, because maybe we're just a little clairvoyant. I'm your host, Meg Wallitzer. Join me, Parker Posey, Zadie Smith, and others for stories about what's hidden behind the eyes of people you love, and even people you've never met. I'm your host, Meg Wallitzer, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. We're all pretty good at managing some kind of public face. Maybe you're someone who's sort of aloof when you're around people you don't know, or else you get really chatty. Or maybe you're sort of aloof until forced into sudden chattiness. My default public face is a kind of cautious friendliness. Because when I go somewhere and I get introduced to someone, if I say, nice to meet you, I'm always afraid it might be a person I've met before. And sometimes it is, and they say, actually, we've met. So these days, I no longer say, nice to meet you, but instead I go for that vague phrase, nice to see you, which means, hey, I think we've already met, but I'm not really sure, so I'm going to speak to you now in this general but slightly warm way. And if it turns out we've never met, I'll turn a little less warm, because otherwise I'd seem too friendly, weirdly friendly, in which case the other person might say, excuse me, I need to go freshen my drink, and they don't even have a drink in their hand. The point is, we've all got these little mechanisms and tricks that help us stay afloat in polite society. Maybe you're someone who lets your social mask slip as soon as possible. Or maybe the idea of strangers glimpsing your true self is basically your worst nightmare. This hour is devoted to stories about what's going on just behind that social mask. We'll hear stories about three women engaged in different kinds of public behavior. Hosting duties, diner lunches, and public performances, and the wild, vivid life that's roiling just beneath the surface. Our first story comes from the writer Truman Capote. From the terrifying true crime narrative of In Cold Blood, a book that kept me up at night, convinced that my entire family was about to be murdered, just like the Clutter family of rural Kansas, to the sad, whimsical urban tale that is Breakfast at Tiffany's, Capote had range. It's common knowledge that his persona was very big and seemed to get bigger with age, as wide as the brim of his fedora. But Capote's work still feels fresh and immediate. The piece you're going to hear now, kind of a sketch, is closer to Breakfast at Tiffany's than In Cold Blood. Though the woman in this story is definitely not from the Holly Golightly school of fictional characters. This is lighthearted fiction with some genuine character idiosyncrasies at play. Plus, it's got a nice twist, and who doesn't like a twist? The actor reading this story has been both host and performer at Selected Shorts. He's appeared on Broadway in shows such as Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo, is a regular in HBO's hit Succession, as well as Netflix's Inventing Anna. Here's A Lamp in a Window by Truman Capote, read by Arian Moayed. Once I was invited to a wedding... The bride suggested I drive up from New York with a pair of other guests, a Mr. and Mrs. Roberts, whom I had never met before. It was a cold April day, and on the ride to Connecticut, the Robertses, a couple in their early 40s, seemed agreeable enough. No one you would want to spend a long weekend with, but not bad. 
However, at the wedding reception, a great deal of liquor was consumed. I should say a third of it by my chauffeurs. They were the last to leave the party at approximately 11 p.m., and I was most wary of accompanying them. I knew they were drunk, but I didn't realize how drunk. We had driven about 20 miles, the car weaving considerably, and Mr. and Mrs. Roberts insulting each other in the most extraordinary language. Really, it was a moment out of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf when Mr. Roberts, very understandably, made a wrong turn and got lost on a dark country road. I kept asking them, finally begging them, to stop the car and let me out, but they were so involved in their invectives that they ignored me. Eventually, the car stopped on its own accord, temporarily, when it swiped against the side of a tree. I used the opportunity to jump out of the car's back door and run into the woods. Presently, the cursed vehicle drove off, leaving me alone in the icy dark. I'm sure my hosts never missed me. Lord knows I didn't miss them. But it wasn't a joy to be stranded out there on a windy, cold night. I started walking, hoping I'd reach a highway. I walked for half an hour without sighting a habitation, then just off the road. I saw a small frame cottage with a porch and a window lighted by a lamp. I tiptoed onto the porch. I looked in the window. An elderly woman with soft white hair and a round, pleasant face was sitting by a fireside reading a book. There was a cat curled in her lap and several others slumbering at her feet. I knocked at the door. And when she opened it, I said, with chattering tick, I am so sorry to disturb you, but I've had a sort of accident. I wonder if I could use your phone to call a taxi. Oh, dear, she said, smiling. I'm afraid I don't have a phone. Too poor. But please come in. And as I stepped through the door into the cozy room, she said, my goodness, boy. You're freezing. Can I make coffee, a cup of tea? I have a little whiskey my husband left. He died six years ago. I said a little whiskey would be very welcome. While she fetched it, I warmed my hands at the fire and glanced around the room. It was a cheerful place occupied by six or seven cats of varying alley cat colors. I looked at the title of the book Mrs. Kelly, for that was her name, I later found out, had been reading. It was Emma by Jane Austen, a favorite writer of mine. When Mrs. Kelly returned with a glass of ice and a dusty quarter bottle of bourbon, she said, sit down, sit down. It's not often I have company. Of course, I have my cats. Anyway, you'll spend the night. I have a nice little guest room that's been waiting such a long time for a guest. In the morning, you could walk to the highway and catch a ride into town where you'll find a garage to fix your car. It's about five miles away. I wondered, aloud, how she could live so isolatedly without transportation or a telephone. She told me her good friend, the mailman, took care of all of her shopping needs. Albert, oh, he's really so dear and faithful, but he's due to retire next year. After that, I 
don't know what I'll do. Oh, but something will come up. Perhaps a kindly new mailman. Tell me, just what sort of accident did you have? When I explained the truth of the matter, she responded indignantly, Oh, you did exactly the right thing. I wouldn't set foot in a car with a, a man who had sniffed a glass of sherry. That's how I lost my husband. Married 40 years, 40 happy years. And I lost him because a drunken driver ran him down. If it wasn't for my cats, she stroked an orange tabby, purring in her lap. We talked by the fire until my eyes grew heavy. We talked about Jane Austen. Ah, oh, Jane. My tragedy is that I've read all her books so often I have them memorized. And other admired authors, Thoreau, Willa Cather, Dickens, Lewis Carroll, Agatha Christie, Raymond Chandler, Hawthorne, Chekhov, de Maupassant. She was a woman with a good and varied mind. Intelligence illuminated her hazel eyes like the small lamp shining on the table beside her. We talked about the hard Connecticut winter, politicians, far places. I've never been abroad, but if I ever had the chance, the place I would have gone is Africa. Sometimes I dream of it, the green hills, the, the, the heat, the beautiful giraffes, the elephants walking about. Religion. Of course, I was raised a Catholic, but now I'm almost sorry to say I have an open mind. Too much reading, perhaps. Gardening. I grow and can all my own vegetables. A necessity. At last, forgive my babbling on. You have no idea how much pleasure it gives me. But it's way past your bedtime. I know it's mine. She escorted me upstairs, and after I was comfortably arranged in a double bed under a blissful load of pretty scrap quilts, she returned to wish me good night and sweet dreams. I lay away thinking about it. What an exceptional experience to be an old woman living alone here in the wilderness and have a stranger knock on your door in the middle of the night and not only open it, but warmly welcome him inside and offer him shelter. If our situations had been reversed, I doubt I would have had the courage to say nothing of the generosity. The next morning, she gave me breakfast in her kitchen, coffee and hot oatmeal with sugar and tinned cream, but I was hungry and it tasted great. The kitchen was shabbier than the rest of the house, the stove, a rattling refrigerator, everything seemed on the edge of expiring, all except one large, somewhat modern object, a deep freeze that fitted into the corner of the room. She was chatting on, I love birds. I feel so guilty about not tossing them crumbs during the winter, but I can't have them gathering around the house because of the cats. Do you care for cats? Yes. I once had a Siamese named Toma. She lived to be 12 and we traveled everywhere together, all over the world. And when she died, I never had the heart to get another then maybe you'll understand this, she said. 
leading me over to the deep freeze and opening it. Inside was nothing but cats. Stacks of frozen, perfectly preserved cats, dozens of them. It gave me an odd sensation. All my old friends gone to rest. It's just I couldn't bear to lose them completely. She laughed and said, <laughs> I guess you think I'm a bit dotty. A bit dotty, yes, a, a bit dotty. I thought as I walked under gray skies in the direction of the highway she had pointed out to me, but radiant, a lamp in a window. That was Arian Moayed performing Truman Capote's story, A Lamp in a Window. Now, I'm not saying all crazy cat ladies have a freezer full of expired pets. I'm betting that most crazy cat ladies' freezers tend toward the usual lean cuisine and haagen and ancient, bent, out-of-the-package, frost-covered ego waffle like the rest of us. However, I have to admit I have never seen the inside of a crazy cat lady's freezer, so I really can't be sure. Beyond the disquieting reveal at the end of this story, there's also a nice takeaway. The narrator genuinely sees this very odd woman for who she is, and he walks away from her house feeling gratified. Forget the solipsistic, garrulous, drunken types who populate parties and bars, and score one for the power of the quietly idiosyncratic. There's a before and after in our next story, too. It was written by Molly Giles. Giles has four story collections, including Rough Translations and All the Wrong Places, and she has won an O. Henry and two Pushcart Prizes. In this story, a woman takes her young daughter out to lunch. But along the way, the story interrogates personal history, the passage of time, and the way kids are always somehow getting sticky and asking the same questions over and over. As adults, our stickiness tends to be a little more metaphorical, and the repeated questions are more often the ones we ask ourselves late at night. Like, why didn't I buy those shares of Apple stock back then? Why did I buy those shares of Blockbuster video stock instead? Stickiness and big questions abound in this subtly funny story set in an ordinary coffee shop where the persistence of the past washes over the protagonist in an unexpected spill. Molly Giles' story is performed by Parker Posey. She's an actor known for everything from Waiting for Guffman to Scream 3. Personally, I would also pay to see Waiting for Guffman 3. And she is currently starring in the Netflix reboot of Lost in Space. Here she is reading Molly Giles's What Do You Say? My daughter and I are having lunch at the counter of Loretta's coffee shop. We've never been here before, but I can tell it's going to be one of our favorite places. The hamburgers are good. The decor looks as if it hasn't changed in 40 years. And the clientele, mainly high school students, construction workers, and small town merchants, doesn't seem to mind if my daughter, who's four, kicks her stool or chews with her mouth full. Right now, she's humming to uh, the Christmas carols we hear from the radio behind the counter. I've asked her to keep her voice down. And as I'm asking her again, the glass door 
bangs open and Mr. Brown comes in. The people at the table glance up at the bell and the gust of cold air, then go back to their sandwiches and their newspapers. My daughter resumes her loud, happy humming. But I continue to stare. I have not seen Mr. Brown in almost 10 years, not since I divorced his son. <laughs> he is very changed. He is thin now, almost gaunt, and uses a cane. His eyes are darkly shadowed in his large, pale face, and his coarse white hair is windblown. The minute I recognize him, I know I should stand up and say hello. Yet, I don't. I, I say nothing. Even though he's wearing a long wool scarf, I, I knit for him myself. I, I say nothing. Perhaps I think he will notice me. But Mr. Brown, standing six feet away, returns my stare with such a brief, unlit stare of his own, a look so remote, it's almost majestic, that I realize he doesn't know who I am. He closes the door and moves toward an empty seat at the far end of the counter. The coffee shop is decorated for Christmas. Plastic bows hang over the windows and plastic berries bob down from the overhead lights. My daughter, still singing, spoons whipped cream off the top of her cocoa. Don't slurp, I say. My voice is louder than it usually is when I correct her in public. If my voice is loud enough, maybe Mr. Brown will hear me. He may stop and turn and say, Diana? But Mr. Brown continues toward a stool, and my daughter continues to slurp. She's excited for Christmas. Too excited for manners. Keep your napkin in your lap, I remind her. It is in my lap, she protests. No, it's not. It's on the floor. I watch Mr. Brown climb onto his stool. His left leg appears to be crippled. He has to hoist it by the knee and swing it onto the footrest. He props the cane beside him and in a move so familiar, it takes my breath away, pinches the bridge of his nose with his fingers, pushing his glasses for a moment to the top of his forehead. As soon as he is settled, I will go to him and touch his arm. Ben, I'll say, remember me? And then I'll wait, for I know I've changed. I'm not the 20-year-old girl who crashed his Lincoln into the garage door, uh, baited him into arguments about Vietnam, and helped him stock the bird feeder on the patio. <laughs> My hair is short now and beginning to gray. I've put on weight, begun to wear glasses. I'm happier now. He will see that I'm happier, as I now see he is less happy than he used to be. Still, when I say, how are you? 
I will keep my smile steady and expectant, as if his answer to my question will, will be the old one. Beautiful, he used to say, beaming. I feel beautiful, beautiful, how about you? I will not ask about his son, my ex-husband, who is going through another divorce, nor will I ask about Billy, who died two years ago of cancer. I will introduce my daughter and spell the name of my current husband, and I will say, it's just so good to see you. If I be good, my daughter says, will I get everything I want? Will I get a camera? Will I get a two-wheeler? I don't think you're old enough for either of those. If I be good, I said. I take another napkin from the dispenser before us and place it in her lap. There's a snowfall of napkins at the foot of her stool and <laughs> pools of cocoa and ketchup dot her place at the counter. <sighs> I open my purse and check my wallet to make sure I have enough money to leave the waitress a generous tip. <laughs> the waitress is young and pretty and wears huge glittery earrings in the shape of Christmas trees that swing when she speaks. She holds the menu in front of her breasts and smiles at Mr. Brown. I hope you're hungry today, she says. Bud made pea soup. <laughs> oh. Mr. Brown looks at the waitress as if he's never heard of pea soup. His face, framed by the twinkling red and green lights around the mirror, looks both attentive and lost. Perhaps he's gone senile. His father was senile. Shoot me if I get like that, Mr. Brown used to say. Drive me into the desert and ditch me. <laughs> the waitress reaches up and adjusts the mistletoe pinned in her hair. Pea soup is your favorite. Oh, yes. He takes the menu the waitress hands him. He's wearing the garnet ring on his right hand, class of 1936 UC Berkeley, and the gold wedding ring on his left. His fingernails are broad and rigid and as clean as ever. I wonder how the waitress ever got the idea that pea soup was his favorite. Clam chowder, barbecue steak, baked beans, onion rings, shrimp salad and French bread and black walnut ice cream. Those were his favorites. He used to weigh 280 pounds and sway around his swimming pool dressed in nothing but a towel, <laughs> dancing to Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass <laughs> with a glass of scotch in one hand and a marble on the other. <laughs> with this waitress and her earrings and mistletoe have liked him back then. He called himself the king of the canyon. Wanted blacks sent to Africa, thought we ought to bomb Cuba, kept a samurai sword that he'd bought on a business trip to Tokyo under his bed, and tried to have the fence around his property electrified to keep the hippies out. <laughs> All ready for Christmas, the girl asked brightly. 
Mr. Brown clears his throat. I don't do much for Christmas, he says. Just going to take it easy, the girl nods. Well, that's the best way. How many Christmases, seven, eight, have I spent with Mr. Brown? Dreary days. Cigarette smoke rising through the sunshine of the house in the canyon, the turkey turning on the spit in the outdoor barbecue, Billy sipping a beer barefoot in her bathrobe and diamonds doing the crossword. Their son, Benji, spent Christmas smoking dope in the bathroom and, and jotting down notes for his thesis, which he said was going to be about tribal rights among West Coast Republicans. <laughs> I sat by the windows and knit. Mr. Brown watched TV. Mr. Brown's father, on loan for the day from the rest home, batted Billy's dog's back with large knuckled hands when they tried to lick him. Just before dinner, we exchanged presents. Benji and I gave Mr. Brown peanut brittle and a subscription to the New Republic. <laughs> Mr. Brown gave us money. Much too much money. He's trying to own us, I warned Benji. We can't pay you back, I explained to Mr. Brown. But Mr. Brown said he didn't want to be paid back. He said he was saving us for something big. He was saving us for his old age. He thought he'd come live with us in a room in our house and play with our children and work in our garden. When, when we tried to explain that we didn't think we'd ever have a house or a child or a garden, when we tried to explain that our generation was different from his, freer, more spontaneous, when we tried to say, don't count on us, he waved us away. He was the only one to cry at our wedding. He hugged us both and talked about sacrifice and compromise and fidelity. His flushed face and hot eyes so frightening that Benji and I gripped hands and giggled. The waitress smiles at my daughter, who ducks her head and kicks her stool. Smile back when someone smiles at you, I tell her in a whisper. Not if I don't have to, my daughter whispers back. The waitress asks if I'd like more coffee. I hesitate. I, I ought to go to Mr. Brown and get it over with, and then I ought to leave. But Mr. Brown's shadow tired, disinterested gaze, meeting mine once again in the mirror, makes me feel relaxed and expansive. If I'm invisible, I reason, I can stay here all day. I can watch and listen like a ghost, a good ghost, who intends no harm. I lean my elbows on the counter and push my cup toward the girl. Yes, please, I say, thank you. Mr. Brown accepts more coffee, too, and I hear the click of his spoon as he stirs in sugar. 
We lift our cups to our lips at the exact same instant. And at the exact same instant, sip. Sipping still, I look at the clock. It is a large brown clock that says Hudson's Hardware. It must have been here forever, and as I look at it, I feel that I have been here forever, too. I have a vision of the restaurant as a railway car slipping down some track off the edge of the world with all of us, my daughter, Mr. Brown, the waitress, the other customers, sailing off into space on a voyage that has no beginning and no end. I don't find this unpleasant. And I am sorry when an apron boy comes out of the kitchen, picks the radio off the shelf, and carries it out with him, taking the Christmas music away. Bud made pea soup. The waitress's voice, insistent, floats down the counter. I'm not very hungry today, Mr. Brown says. I, I think I'll just have some toast, maybe an egg. And how would you like your egg? Mr. Brown doesn't answer. The usual, the girl persists. That would be fine, he says mildly. We can't stay here all day. I rouse myself and turn to my daughter. We, we've got a lot to do. Are you almost through? If I be good, <laughs> my daughter begins. Yes, I prompt. Will I get everything I want all the time, <laughs> always? No one gets everything they want. This is an old speech, one I've given again and again. My daughter listens, chewing her thoughts on her camera. Good is usually rewarded, I assure her. Mischief usually is not. Most people get what they deserve. I wipe her chin, wondering how this applies to Mr. Brown. What did he do to deserve to end up here in Loretta's coffee shop, old and ill and so alone? He was never a tolerant man. He repeated the same jokes over and over. He ate and drank and smoked to excess. But he used to stand with his arms around the garbage bags, staring up at the moon. <laughs> and he used to take his glasses off and wipe his eyes when he laughed. He never cheated or lied, and he never personally ordered napalm poured on babies, as Benji claimed. Benji detested him, but I never did. I liked the way he confronted things head on. When he and Benji argued, it was like watching a dog fight a cat. He, he would lunge straight for the heart of the question while Benji, evasive, would leap from side to side, answering each question with another of his own. These fights usually happen during television commercials. 
Mr. Brown would switch the sound off with his remote control, lean back in his leather recliner, and ask Benji to explain to him once again why he was studying anthropology in college instead of business education. Did he expect it to help him in the real world? What do you call the real world, Benji would ask. I call the real world the real world, Mr. Brown would shout, damn it! Benji would grin as if he had just scored a point, but I never understood the point. Benji and I could have used some definitions of real world. We weren't convinced it even existed. Mr. Brown was. He still is. He is facing the mirror, unadorned and smiling. When he looks up at the clock, he sees the time and does not try to escape the time with visions of railway cars sailing through space. My daughter reminds me of her presence by spilling her cocoa all over the counter. I sop it up with handfuls of thin paper napkins. It was an accident, she explains in an unhushed voice. Everybody has accidents. The waitress brings a cloth and helps me clean up as Mr. Brown, unnoticing, raises a piece of toast and bites down. His dentures make the same old click. Benji would snort at the sound of that click. He'd snort helplessly, unhappily trying to catch my eye. Sometimes I'd grin back at him. Sometimes I wouldn't. It was so easy to see how Benji, with his notebook and his giggle, drove his father crazy. And I saw, too, how Mr. Brown, massive and complacent, made Benji want to smash him. I stayed out of it. But by the time I left, by the time Benji and I agreed that sacrifice and compromise and fidelity were real words in a real world we had yet entered, by the time the marriage ended, I had contempt for them both. Shall I go to Mr. Brown and tell him that? Shall I take out all the old angers and shake them over his breakfast plate? It doesn't matter if you don't remember me, I will say. You never did know me well. You used to call me beautiful because you couldn't always remember my name. I wasn't important to you. Benji was important to you, but you didn't think Benji was an important person. In the end, I didn't either. In the end, I disliked your boy as much as you did. I found him young and lacking, too. You won, I'll say to Mr. Brown. Mr. Brown reaches into his breast pocket of his shirt and pulls out a packet of cigarettes, not Marlboros, but something lighter with less nicotine and tar. The waitress earrings dangling strikes a match for him. For a second, leaning forward with both hands clasped around his lit cigarette, Mr. Brown looks like the king of the canyon again. He's regal and at ease. Then he coughs. The cough takes me as much by surprise as it seems to take him. The force of it lurches him sideways. He might lose his balance and fall off the stool and I slip from my stool, ready to catch him. I see myself breaking his fall, cradling his head. 
I imagine myself pushing the stiff white, unwashed hair back from the staring eyes. It's all right, I'll say, I'm here. I've come back. Diana is here, ready to take care of you in your old age. But Mr. Brown composes himself and does not fall. The long, quivering afterwaves of his cough fade as I pay my bill, leave my tip. The waitress reaches over the cash register and hands a small cellophane-wrapped candy cane to my daughter. What do you say? I ask as my daughter takes it. She will not answer. <laughs> what do you say? I repeat. I have to go to the bathroom, she says at last. The bathroom? There's a restroom down there. The waitress points past Mr. Brown, and I see we have to pass directly behind him. As I near him, I pause. The scarf I knit is close enough to touch, and it is stained and unraveled. I could offer to fix it. I still have the yarn. It wasn't that long ago, the summer I knit it. I remember sitting under the oak trees, listening to the splash from the swimming pool as Mr. Brown dove in, and the clink of ice cubes from Billy's gin and tonic. The thud of a basketball as Benji threw it again and again against the side of the house. My head was empty that summer, except for the tick-tock of knit and pearl. And as I shook the scarf out over my bare sunburned legs, I thought how nice it would be when it was finished and how pleased Mr. Brown would be to have something for me. My daughter pulls at one hand, and even as I follow her, I am imagining how my other hand will look on Mr. Brown's shoulder, how I will pivot him gently and gently say, hello. That was Parker Posey performing Molly Giles' story, What Do You Say? It can be a challenge to set a story in a single, small, contained location. What happens here in this static setting is that the characters seem to be set into relief. The mother, Diana, reveals the two sides any mother possesses, the one she shows her child and the one she keeps to herself. And Mr. Brown, sitting nearby, is both a poignant and fragile figure in his present incarnation and, as relayed by Diana's memory, bigger and more surprising in his past incarnation. The past and the present merge in the confines of this coffee shop, and it's as if everything in the story is compressed. So the question of whether Diana actually will or will not approach him becomes something we really, really need to find out. I'm Meg Wallitzer. When we come back, Zadie Smith channels Billie Holiday. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City. 
and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. The stories in this episode are all about what's going on beneath the facade of three different women. One is dotty, one tender, and one fierce. If you missed either of the first two stories, let's remedy that. You can find this show and many others on our website, selectedshorts.org. Hit subscribe, and you'll know when each new episode drops. And please leave us a review. We'd love that. The final story of this hour was written by Zadie Smith. She is a potent fiction and nonfiction writer whose titles include White Teeth, Swing Time, Feel Free, and Intimations. Smith is really good at climbing into the heads and hearts of her many characters and helping the reader understand exactly what it feels like to be them. Here, she challenges herself by choosing a public figure about whom we all know something— Billie Holiday. I found this story haunting, as Smith's narrative really seems to embody Lady Day, much the way the actors who perform on her show embody the characters and stories. Smith says this story came about because she was asked to write an article about Holiday and found that she could do it only in Holiday's voice. So this tale imagines the inner life of Holiday while she's at the height of her popularity, fending off both public perception and private demons. It's read by an actor who has appeared on Broadway in shows such as Disgraced and is known for series including, and just like that, Luke Cage and The Morning Show. This is Karen Pittman performing Crazy They Call Me by Zadie Smith. Well, you certainly don't go out any place less than dressed, not these days. Can't let anybody mistake you for that broken, misused little girl, Eleonora Fagan. No, let there be no confusion. Not in the audience, or in your old man, or in the maitre d', or the floor manager, the cops, or the goddamn agents of the goddamn IRS. You always have your fur present and correct, hanging off your shoulders, just so. Take back your mink. Take back your pearls. But you don't sing that song. <laughs> it's, it's not in your key. There's <laughs> some other girls sing it. The type who gets a smile from a cop, even if she's crossing Broadway in her oldest Terraline house dress. You don't have that luxury. Besides, you love that mink. <laughs> Makes the state of things clear. In fact, Though many aren't hip to this yet, not only is there no more Eleonora, there isn't any Billy, either. There's only Lady Day. Alligator bag, three rows of diamonds, nice and thick on your wrist. Never mind that it's three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> you boil an egg and twin set and pearls. They got you holed up in Newark for the length of this engagement, and one day the wife of the super says to you, so you can't play in New York no more, huh? 
Who cares? To me, you always look like a lady. She's Italian. She gets it. No judgment. She says, I look after you. I be your mother. God bless her, but your daughter days are done. And if a few sweet, clueless bobby socks are as happy as Sunday, stop you on 110th to tell you how much they loved you at Carnegie Hall, how much they loved you on The Tonight Show, you try your best not to look too bored, take out your pearl-encrusted cigarette box, hand them a smoke. Girl, you must give away 20 smokes a day. You give it all away. It streams from you like rivers roll into the sea. Love, music, money. Smokes. What you got, everybody wants. And most days you let them have it. Sometimes it's as much as you're going to keep hold of your mink. It's not that you don't like other women, exactly. It's only that you're wary. And they're wary of you right back. No surprise, really. Most of these girls live in a completely different world. You visited that world on occasion, but it's not home. You're soon back on the road. Meanwhile, they look at you and they see that you're unattached, even when you're hitched. They see you floating, that no one tells you when to leave the club and there's nobody crying in a cot waiting for you to pick them up and sing a lullaby. No. Nobody tells you who to see or where to go, and if they do, you don't have to listen, even when you get a sock in a jaw. Now, the women you tend to meet, they don't know what to do with that. They don't know what to do with a God-blessed child with a girl that's got her own who can stay up drinking with the clarinet player till the newspaper boys hit the corners. And maybe one of these broads is married to that clarinet player. And maybe the two of them have a baby and a picket fence and all that jazz. So naturally, she's wary. You could understand that. Sure. And he always been, well, what's the right term for it? Man's lady? Men are drawn to you, all kinds of men, and not just for the obvious. Even your best girlfriends are men, if you see what I mean, yes. You got your little gang of dear boys who aren't so different from you, despite appearances. They got nobody steady to go home to either. So if some lover man breaks your heart or your face, you can trust in your little gang to be there for you. More often than not, trust them to come round to wherever you're at with cigarettes and alcohol and quote Miss Crawford and quote Miss Stanwick and make highballs and tell you that you really ought to get a dog. Honey, you should get a dog. <laughs> they never doubt that you're Lady Day. Matter of fact, they knew you were she before you did. You get a dog. Women are rarey. Lover men come and go and mostly leave you waiting. And truth be told, even those dear boys who make the highballs have their own thing going on more often than not. But you're not afraid to look for love 
in all kinds of places. Once upon a time, there was that wild girl, Tallulah, plus a few other ladies. Back in the day, but there was no way to be in the world like that, not back then. Or no way you could see. And anyhow, most of those ladies were crazier than a box of frogs. Nobody's perfect. Which is another way of saying, there's no escape from this world. And so sometimes on a Friday night, after the singing is over and the clapping dies down, there's simply no one and nothing to be done. You fall back on yourself. Backstage empties out, but they're still serving. You're not in the mood for conversation. Later, you'll open your vanity case and take a trip on the light. Fantastic. But right at this moment, you're grateful for your little dog. You did have a huge great dog a while back, but she was always knocking glasses off the side tables unless you went and died on you. So now I got this tiny little angel, Peppy. A dog don't cheat. A dog don't lie. Dogs remind you of you. They give everything they've got. They're wide open to the world. It's a big risk. There are people out there who kick a little half-pint dog like Peppy just for something to do. And you know how that feels. This little dog and you, soulmates. Where you been all my life? He's like those dogs you read about that sit on their master's graves for years and years and years. Recently, you had a preview of this. You were up in the stratosphere with nobody at all, floating almost right there with God. You were hanging off the pearly gates and nobody and nothing could make you come back. Some fool slapped you. Some other fool spread seltzer in your face. Nothing. Then this little angel of a dog licked you right in your eye socket. And you came straight back to earth just to feel it. Three hours after that, you were on stage, getting paid. Dogs are too good for this world. Maybe a lot of people wouldn't guess it, but you can be the most wonderful aunt, godmother, nursemaid, when the mood takes you. You can spot a baby across a room and make it smile. That's a skill. Most people don't even try to develop it. People are always telling these put-upon babies what to do, what to think, what to say, what to eat, but you don't ask anything at all from them. And that's your secret. You're one of the few who just like to make a baby smile. And they love you for it. Make no mistake, they adore you. And all things being equal, you'd stay longer if you could. You'd stay and play. But you've got bills to pay. Matter of fact, downstairs right this moment, there's five or six of these business-minded fellows. Some of them you know pretty well. Some of them you don't. Some you never saw before in your life, but they're all involved in your bills one way or another. And they say if you don't mind too much, they'd like to escort you to the club. It's only 10 blocks, but they'd like to walk you there. 
I guess somebody thinks you're not going to get there at all without these, now, what do you call them? Chaperones. Guess somebody's worried. With you, with or without your chaperones, you'll get there. You always get there. You're always on time. Except during those exceptions when exceptional things seem to happen, which simply can't be helped. Anyway, once you open your mouth, all is forgiven. You even forgive yourself because you are exceptional. And so exceptions must be made. And isn't the point that whenever a lady turns up on stage, she's always right on time? Hair takes a while. Face takes longer. It's all work. It's all a kind of armor. You got skinny a while back and some guys don't like it. One even told you that you got a face like an Egyptian death mask now. Well, good. You wear it. It's yours. Big red lips and now this high new ponytail bouncing around. The gardenia's gone. The gardenias belong to Billy. And if someone asks you where exactly this new long twist of hair comes from, you'll cut your eyes at whoever's doing the asking and say, well, I wear it, so I guess it's mine. It's my hair on my goddamn head. It's arranged just so around my beautiful mask. Take a good look. Because you know they're all looking right at you as you sing. You place it deliberately in the spotlight. Your death mask. Because you know they can't help but seek your soul in the face. It's their instinct to look for it there. You paint the face as protection. You draw the eyebrows, define the lips. It's the border between them and you. Otherwise, everybody in the place would think they had permission to leap right down your throat and eat your heart out. People ask, what's it like standing up there? It's like eating your own heart out. It's like there's nobody out there in the dark at all. All the downtown collectors and the white ladies in their own fancy furs love to talk about your phrase. And it's the fashion to talk about your phrase. And, but what sounds like a revolution to others is simple common sense to you. All respect to Ella. All respect to Sarah. When those gals open their mouths to sing well to you, it's like someone just opened a brand new Frigidaire. A chill comes over you. You just can't do it like that. Won't. It's obvious to you that a voice has the same work to do, musically speaking, as the sax or the trumpet or the piano. A voice has got to feel its way in. Who the hell doesn't know that? Yet somehow these people don't act like they know it. They always seem surprised. They sit in the dark drinking martinis in their mink and their tux. People are idiots. You wear pearls and you throw them before swine, more or less. Depends what pearls, though, and what swine. Not everybody, for example, is going to get strange fruit. Not every night. They've got to be deserving, a word that means a different thing depending on the night. 
You told somebody once, I only do it for people who might understand and appreciate it. This is not a June moon croon tune. This song tells a story about pain and heartache. 300 years of heartache. You got to turn each room you play into a kind of church in order to accommodate that much pain. Yet people shout their requests from their tables like you a goddamn jukebox. People are idiots. You never sing anything after strange fruit either. That's the last song, no matter what. And sometimes if you're high and the front row look rich and stupid and dull, that's liable to be your only song and they'll be thankful for it. Even though it's not easy for them to listen to and not easy for you to sing, when you sing it, you have been described as punishing. You have been described as relentless. Well, you're not done with that song till you're done with it. You'll never be done with that song. It'll be done with you first. In the end, people don't want to hear about dogs and babies and feeling your way into a phrase or eating your heart out. People want to hear about you as you appear at these songs. They never want to know about the surprise you feel in yourself, the sense of being directed by God. When something in the modulation of your throat leaps up like a kid reaching for a rising balloon, except most kids miss while you catch it. Yes, you catch it. Almost without expecting to, landing on an incidental note perfect addition, one you had never put in that phrase before and never heard anyone else do, and yet you can hear it at once that it is perfection, perfection. It has the sound of something totally inevitable. It's better than Porter. It's better than Gershwin. In a moment, you have written over their original versions, finally and completely. No, they never ask you about that. They want the cold, hard facts. They ask dull questions about the songs, about which man goes with which song in your mind. And if they're a little more serious, they may ask about Armstrong or Basie or Lester. If they're sneaky with no manners, they'll want to know if chasing the drink or the dragon made singing those songs harder or sweeter. They'll want to know about your run-ins with the federal government of these United States. They'll want to know if you hated or loved the people in your audience, the people who paid your wages, stole your wages, arrested you once for fraternizing with a white man, jailed you for hooking, jailed you for being, and raided your hospital room right at the end as you lay conversing with God. They're always very interested to hear that you don't read music. Once you almost said to a sneaky fellow from the Daily News who was inquiring, you almost turned to him and said, motherfucker, I am music. But a lady doesn't speak like that, however. And so you did not. Thank you.
That Was Crazy They Call Me by Zadie Smith, performed by Karen Pittman. I really admire this story and the deep dive it takes into a figure who's both known to us and also not known, because everyone is in so many ways a mystery. It's daring to try to capture and describe the inner life of an actual person who once lived, or even still does. As a writer, I tend not to try that. Partly it's because I'm scared to get some important biographical detail wrong, but mostly it's because I simply prefer inventing characters whole cloth. When I was a kid, I loved reading biographies of famous people, particularly Helen Keller, Eleanor Roosevelt, Harriet Tubman, and Clara Barton. There was an entire series of biographies written for children, and you got the feeling the writers did some research, then wrote each one in half an hour. Sometimes they would begin like this. Eleanor Roosevelt woke up and yawned, then stretched. Another day was about to begin. To which I now think, how do you know? You weren't there. But at the time, I didn't care. I just wanted to know what it was like to be another person. We often go to fiction for that reason. After all, we spend our lives trapped in this one body. We never get out. It's like we live in one of those escape rooms that got so popular a few years ago. We've got our own personal escape room, except we can never escape from it ever. So whenever I read a story or even when I write one, I have the sense of being both outside and inside myself. It's a relief not to have to put yourself front and center all the time. Instead, you might put the great Billie Holiday front and center, or else a completely invented character. It's necessary to hear about someone else's obsessions and pleasures and secrets and pain once in a while, to actually turn away from our own little escape room and enter another one, getting a chance to feel what that person feels, whether she's trapped or free or desperate or broken. That's exciting. That's fiction. So maybe keep these things in the back of your mind the next time you're faced with that unfriendly barista glued to his cell phone or, you know, your mom. No, that came out weird. I do not mean to suggest that unfriendly barista is glued to your mom, though that could be interesting. Fiction is, in some ways, an engine to generate empathy. It's true that stories like the three we've just heard shed light on the lives of intimates and strangers. But they also help us recognize a similar depth and complexity in the people around us, something located just behind that smile. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves that something might be going on with the other person that we have no idea about, though I do like to try to imagine what it might be. And maybe one day I will feel compelled to write a story about it, which could start like this. The unfriendly barista woke up and yawned, then stretched. Another day was about to begin. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our mix engineer for this episode was Dennis Jacobson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. 
Selected Shorts is made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. <laughs>